Will you turn to the book of Ruth and chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2. We're continuing our studies in uh, this lovely little book. Uh, We come to Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Then Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And now you left your father, and how you left your father and mother and your native country and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Then she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, He said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, 
that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. Well, you'll remember from our previous two studies that uh, the woman to whom the uh, book is dedicated and named after Ruth was raised in the immoral pagan culture of, uh, of uh, Moab, exposed to the idolatrous worship of Chemosh, and she, through marriage, had come into the family of Naomi and become acquainted with the true God, Yahweh. Now that acquaintance with the true and living God, Yahweh, we used to say a generation ago, Jehovah, that acquaintance with Yahweh was more than a superficial uh, outward profession. Unlike her sister-in-law, Oprah, Ruth remained faithful and went back with Naomi to the land of Judah. And so chapter 1 ends with the words, verse 22 of chapter 1, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. Now what we have in chapter 2 is a detailed account of Ruth's uh, meeting with this man Boaz, who was later to become her husband. Now we are led into the secret in verse 1, although the uh, writer tells us that secret, that secret was unknown, of course, to Ruth and Naomi. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And in the rest of the chapter, we have God's providential dealings with these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, when they arrived back in Bethlehem and how Ruth was brought into contact with Boaz. I think the key verse to the chapter is verse 12. Boaz is speaking to Ruth and uh, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you Uh, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's a a lovely expression, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It's it's, uh, like the chick finding security and rest and protection under the wings of its mother. But perhaps there's a deeper illusion here. Because you know at the center of the tabernacle stood the Holy of Holies. In the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was basically a box that contained the Ten Commandments. The lid of the box was known as the mercy seat. And then over the, uh, the, the box, facing each other with wings stretched out towards each other, almost touching, were two cherubim, two angel-like figures. And God was said to dwell in the wings of the cherubim, that that was his throne, that was his dwelling place. And it's almost in verse 12 that Boaz is saying that Ruth has come into the presence of God and she's living under the protection of God. She had come and given her life over to God. 
There are allusions in the Psalms to that kind of thing. David says in Psalm 61 and verse 4, I long to dwell in your tent, in your tabernacle, uh, and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So Boaz is declaring to Ruth that she had come into the presence of God and in the providence of God. She was living under the protection of God. And that's what this chapter is about. It's God's protection, his providential care of his people. God is sovereign. God is in control. And providence is the means that God uses to execute his purposes in the world, to accomplish his purposes in the world. It's God working through circumstances to bring about his will. And, and from this chapter, I want you to need to notice four things about the providence of God. This God working in our circumstances to accomplish his purposes. First of all, God's providential care does not eliminate difficulty. Louis Burkhoff says, Providence is the exercise of divine energy where the Creator preserves His creatures, operates in all circumstances, so that things in our world are brought to their appointed end. There are two kingdoms in this world, the church and the world, and He rules in both, but He rules in one for the benefit of the other, so that the Christian can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now that doctrine, the doctrine of the providence of God, is a great comfort to the child of God. But it's important for us to understand that providence, the doctrine of providence, does not remove difficulty. It's not that God only allows good to come into our lives, into the life of the believer, but rather he works all things, both good and bad, together for, for good. Now that's wonderfully illustrated in the life of Ruth. Since taking refuge under the shadow of Yahweh's wings, Ruth had experienced nothing but heartache, heartbreak, and hardship. Her husband died. Her brother-in-law died. And since her father-in-law had already died, she was exposed to all the dangers of widowhood living in a primitive culture. She had watched her family assets disappear and, and watched Naomi reduced to poverty. It's interesting when uh, they arrive back in Bethlehem in verse 2, she asked permission of Ruth to glean in the fields after the harvesters. There was a, an ancient kind of social security system in Israel, and it, it meant that farmers or harvesters weren't allowed to harvest right up to the edge of the field. They had to leave the portions at the edge of the field. They weren't allowed to go back over the field and, and have a repick and pick up the stuff that was left over. They had to leave it for the poor. Now, by Ruth asking Naomi to go into the field to glean after the harvesters, she was identifying herself as poor, and the family is poor. 
And remember, Naomi, or Elimelech rather, her husband, was uh, an Ephrathite. He was part of the aristocracy around Bethlehem. He was a, a wealthy man. He was a prosperous man. He was an influential man. And here, by Naomi agreeing to Ruth to glean, she's identifying herself as poverty-stricken, in need of social security. Notice how in verses 6 and 7, we're told she worked steadily from morning to evening. Now, morning in the Hebrew language is much more precise than it is in English. In English, it means any time from daybreak to 12 noon. Well, in fact, it can mean any time from, from 12 midnight to uh, 12 noon because we speak about 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. But the Hebrew is much more precise. It's daybreak. So Ruth had labored from daybreak to dawn in this field. In verse 14, uh, Boaz comes and he shares some roasted grain and we're told that she ate until she was satisfied. And then the leftovers she gathered up and she took back to Naomi. Now, you think of it, she's, she's working, if that was the lunchtime meal, she's working then uh, to, to sunset. Uh, uh, gleaning was uh, heavy work. She was probably herself ravenous with hunger. She had this little bag of leftover corn, but she didn't take it out and eat it. She brought it back to Naomi because it was probably the first meal that Naomi had that day. So God works in all things for the good of his people, but in working all things for the good in all things for the good of his people that doesn't eliminate difficulty christians suffer too christians experience hardship too christians uh, experience loss and disappointment and death but it's important for us to notice that those trials that um, Naomi faced, the bad things that she faced were the very things that drove her into Boaz's field. So if she had come back with her resources intact from Moab, she would have never gone to the field of Moab. Or one step back, if her husband had never died, she probably would never have left Moab. So the providence of God, the doctrine of the providence of God doesn't eliminate difficulty, but it's that God is working in all things to accomplish his purposes. Maybe you're not a Christian and uh, you're facing difficulty and hardship, and it may be that the very difficulty you're facing is God's way of driving you to seek refuge under the shadow of his wings. God's providential care does not eliminate difficulty. Secondly, God's providential care does not cancel human responsibility. Some people believe that the doctrine of divine providences, uh, providence teaches that God controls the affairs of men in such a way that our roles uh, as individuals are passive. And we need to just sit back and wait for things to happen. As we shall see, Ruth chapter 2 is a glorious illustration of divine providence. But nevertheless, Ruth is actively involved and responsible 
and accountable before God. As Matthew Henry says, God's providence leaves room for the use of our prudence. We see Ruth in verse 2 asking permission from Naomi to glean in the field. From verse 7, we know that she asked for the special privilege of gleaning while the harvesters were still in the field. And perhaps the reason for that was for her own protection because as a, as a single woman she, and a Gentile, she was in personal danger. Notice in verse 9, Boaz says, I have charged the young men not to touch you. And in verse 22, Naomi says, lest uh, in another field you be assaulted. That there was a very real danger, not only of physical harm, but of sexual abuse. Verse 17, she gleaned until evening. That's from morning daybreak to dusk, gathering an ephah of barley. That's about uh, 20 or 25 liters. Ruth worked hard. She pushed the doors open. She didn't say to herself, Oh, look, I've come to live under the shadow of his wings. I can just sit at home and wait for God to unfold his plans and his purposes. She took care over her personal protection, gleaning in the fields of the harvester. She worked hard, laboring from daybreak to, uh, to dusk. Now, some Christians have no doctrine of divine providence, and that's sad. But others have such a fatalistic view of divine providence that they leave no room for human responsibility. That we are pawns in some divine chess game or puppets on strings worked and controlled by a divine puppeteer. But the glory of providence is that God works in our actions to accomplish his purposes. Ruth's request to Nomi, the permission granted by the supervisor, God was in all of that working for good. Some people say, well, look, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If God wants me to go through that door, he's going to open that door for me. I'm a great believer in pushing the doors, trying the doors, putting your shoulder to the door and giving a great shove. The person who's unemployed and says, well, if God's going to give me a job, uh, um, I, I, I just need to be patient and I just need to wait. And they never fill in an application form. And then the person who has been given a a serious diagnosis and says, well, it's all part of God's will. I'm just going to sit back, refuse medication, and refuse hospitalization. You see, divine providence never acts in a vacuum. Or maybe a non-Christian saying, well, God has an elect, and if the elect are going to be saved, um, I just have to wait until the Spirit moves upon me. And there's no seeking after God. There's no longing after God. There's no reading the Scriptures in order that they might find God. You see, divine providence doesn't cancel human responsibility. God works in all things, in our activity as well, to accomplish his purposes. Thirdly, God's providential care governs all of the believer's activities. Abraham Kuyper was prime minister of Holland at the turn of the 20th century. He was also a professor of theology, a journalist, an author, and an art lover. He founded the Free University of Amsterdam in 1880. And in his inaugural uh, lecture, he said these famous words, There is not an inch in the whole area of human existence of which Christ 
is not sovereign of all and does not cry, it is mine. It was his conviction, in the words of the popular song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Or in the words of Paul in Romans 11 verse 36, that from him and through him and to him are all things. That all that happens in this world of chance and change, that God is in that chance and change and is working out his plan for the world. And uh, that plan and purpose is, first of all, the glory of his name, and secondly, the good of his people. Now, we see this in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. It's a, it's a wonderful verse. She happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. She happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Um, the NIV says, as it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. The authorized version says her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Hubbard paraphrases it, I don't think very helpfully, but he paraphrases it, as luck would have it, she happened to come into the field of Boaz. Now the writer of Ruth knows that his readers will understand that this is no accidental happenstance to use an old English word. That what happened to Ruth on one hand was sheer coincidence, but on the other hand, her very circumstances were being ordered by the hand of God. I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, she happened to come to Boaz's field, or at least part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Why did she go to that field? She, she picked that field at random. As I said, verse 1 of chapter 2 is the editor's note letting us into the secret before he tells us the story. Was it just chance or circumstance? Notice the character of Boaz. He was a good man, verse 8. He realizes the dangers for Ruth in gleaning and allows her to follow after his servant girls. He's a, he's a generous man. He allows her to quench her thirst from working at the water jars. In verse 14, he gives her a substantial portion of roasted grain, enough for lunch to satisfy her hunger and enough to feed Naomi when they went home. And in verse 15, he allows her to glean among the, the sheaves and even ordered his, his uh, harvesters to pull out a few of the sheaves and leave them for Ruth to pick up. So he was a good man. He was a generous man. He was a godly man. Look at his greeting there uh, of the harvesters in verse 4. He comes into the field and he says, The Lord be with you. And they answer, The Lord bless you. I remember this was the time of the judges, the time, a time of spiritual declension and apostasy. And yet Boaz has created this godly atmosphere in the workplace. He was a godly man. I was all of that just coincidence. A good man, a generous man, a godly man, that she just happened, happened to come into the field of Boaz. But there's more. Remember, Boaz later becomes her husband. Boaz is a single man. 
But he's older than her because in chapter 3 and verse 10, he says to her, you have not gone after younger men. Now, the chances of an older man in, in uh, that ancient culture of being single was, was very low indeed. But he's not only available as a husband, according to verse 20, he's the kinsman redeemer. Look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So there was this provision in the law that if somebody fell into poverty, a close relative could come and redeem their property and purchase it back for them. So she comes into this field of a man who was good, who was generous, who was godly, who was single, but also related to her, one of the family redeemers. We'll look at that later. Then, then of course, um, Ruth was a Gentile. Remember in our study last week, we noticed that no self-respecting Judean or Israelite would ever, ever touch a Gentile woman. He might rape her in the field, which was the danger that's been alluded to in the text, but he wouldn't marry her and take her into her house. And that's why Naomi says, uh, are you going to wait until I have another child? And even if I became pregnant this night, are you going to wait until that child grows up and can father a son for you? And really she's saying, your chance of finding a husband in Bethlehem is zilch. There's no way that you're going to, 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 to get a husband. And yet she's brought into... The, the field of a man who is single and is open to marrying a Gentile. That was very rare. Now, why do you think, why do you think that Boaz was open to marrying a Gentile? Something that, remember, was forbidden by the law of God. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 1, to verse 5, to the genealogy of Jesus. I, th- I find this fascinating. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5, we're told, this is the genealogy of Jesus, and Salome, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab, remember, was the prostitute. Remember, she hid the spies when they uh, came to Jericho. Now, there could be some gaps in this genealogy uh, for literary purposes, but either Boaz's mother or his grandmother, maybe even his great-grandmother, was a Gentile who had come to faith. And so Boaz himself wasn't averse to marrying a Gentile convert. Because he had seen this principle at work and he had seen evidence of true conversion and true salvation and true faith in the life of his mother, grandmother, or perhaps even his great-grandmother. So do you, do you see the remarkable providence of God? She just happened, happened, bit of luck, came into the field of Boaz. 
He's a good man. He's a generous man. He's a godly man. He's a single man. He's the kinsman redeemer. And he was the man who was opposed to marrying a Gentile because he had seen it in his own family. Chance? Coincidence? Luck? No divine providence. Our God is on the throne and he's working in all things, in all things, for the good of his people. God has a plan and purpose. Now, sometimes it's not obvious. I'm sure at times Ruth questioned what was going on, what God was doing, and why, since coming out to live under the shadow of his wings, had she known only hardship and heartbreak. But God was in control, and in his own time, and in his own way, he was bringing about his purposes. Are you in difficulty? Are you facing hardship? You need to learn to trust in the God of providence. All may seem dark. All may seem uh, black and dismal with no future. But God is at work and he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. You're still living under the shadow of his wings. Hannah Moore was the 18th century philanthropist and and, uh, poet and uh, well-known in uh, literary circles, uh, uh, a friend of Gary, the, the playwright. And, uh, and she went then to a, a carpet store, a, a weaver who was weaving a carpet, and she saw this horrible mess coming off the loom. And she, she looked at it, disgusted, and said, who ever is going to buy that? And then the proprietor, he flicked over the carpet, and she saw the the beautiful pattern that she was looking at the, the wrong side. And sometimes we're looking at the wrong side. We can't see what God is doing, but God is doing something, and he's weaving things together for our good. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves so steadily. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. Our Cooper's great hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. That's what we do. We, we judge him by what we see and what we feel. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. You see, living under the shadow of his wings does not eliminate difficulty. It doesn't cancel our responsibility. But it does mean that he is in control of all our activity. And he's working things together for good. Even as we sang earlier, in in the midst of the storm, we're under the shadow of his wings. He is working everything together for good, working and weaving the pattern of our lives. Is that not a comfort? Let me say, if you're not, you're not a Christian, you have no such comfort. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who, who, everyone, for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Life is hard and life is difficult and life has its losses and its crosses. But the Christian can rejoice that that God, as the hymn writer says, can sanctify to us our deepest distress. 
the non-Christian has no such hope and no such comfort. And although you may feel self-confident and self-sufficient and self-reliant now, the time will come when you will need to be under the shadow of his wings. And remember, living under the shadow of his wings, well, under the shadow of his wings is the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was, was smeared. And you've got to come and experience the mercy of God before you know the, the care of God and the providence of God in your life. God's providential care does not eliminate difficulty. God's providential care uh, does not cancel human responsibility. God's providential care governs all of our activity. And God's providential care uh, renews and revives us spiritually. Remember at this stage, Ruth had no idea that she would eventually uh, marry Boaz. Indeed, not until she returned to Naomi did she discover that he was the family redeemer. But the, the little tokens of God's providential care just encouraged her and strengthened her. Look at verse 13. I have found favor, she says to Boaz, I find favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant. Authorized version says, spoken friendly. The Hebrew lit literally means spoken to my heart, that you have comforted me and spoke into my inner life. These tokens of God's providence had encouraged and renewed Ruth spiritually. My things weren't yet secure. An ephah of barley might guarantee her and Naomi's uh, short-term future, but certainly not her long-term future. But in those little parcels of providence, in those little tokens of mercy, she was able to find strength, encouragement, and help. And so when we're going through hard times, we need to look for those little parcels of providence that we, we can't see always the end that God has planned. But just to look for those little parcels of mercy, those little parcels of grace that come along the way that can encourage us. You, you see that even with, with Naomi. Do you remember how when she arrived back in Bethlehem in chapter 1 and verse 20, she, uh, uh, the, the women of Bethlehem say, could this be could this be Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. She was a bitter old woman. She was sarred by the difficulties of her life. She said, the Lord's fighting against me. The Lord's hand has, has gone out a, 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 against me. But do you, do you see the, the change that takes place in verse 20 of chapter 2? And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi had said to her, The man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. She felt forsaken. She felt abandoned. She felt that God was fighting against her. But these little tokens revived her and encouraged her. So both in the, Ruth, uh, in the heart of Ruth and in the Ruth at the heart of Naomi, there was this encouragement that came. And just to encourage you, when you're going through those hard times and those difficult times, just look for those little 
indications of mercy. Just remember that providence always has to be estimated at its end, but by its end, but you need to, to read providence as it unfolds and just look for those little indications, those little droplets of the love of God and the kindness of God and that God hasn't abandoned you and left you and that in those indications you might find the strength to persevere until he reveals what his plan and purpose is. So there you have it. God's providence. What a wonderful doctrine that is. God's providential care does not eliminate difficulty. You're having difficulties. There might be nothing wrong with you spiritually whatsoever. Nothing wrong with you. It's, it's just providence doesn't take away difficulties. It's in all things, good and bad, that God works for good. God's providential care does not cancel responsibility. You need to put your shoulder to that door and you need to give it a good push. You need to do something about the circumstances that you're in. You need to try and improve your situation. It's in those circumstances that God works. And God's providential care governs all the believer's activities, even down to the last detail of our lives in uh, choosing the field in which to harvest. God's in control. And God's providential care renews us and revives us spiritually. What a great comfort that doctrine is. Amen.